Hey guys, uh, this is Mike Regan, the host of the Town Alone Pro Wrestling Podcast. That's what you are indeed listening to. Uh, I decided that before you know we hit the intro theme and we get to you know talking about the goings ons and the business um, and yucking it up and making smart ass comments and uh, you know on my part attempting and probably failing to be funny. Um, I just had to kind of address you know the rough couple days the professional wrestling community had last week with um on wednesday the 23rd the news broke of the passing of the hall of famer legendary terry funk and you know before fans and and people in the business even really got time to finish mourning and processing that we were uh blindsided by the unbelievably shocking and, and traumatic news of the passing of uh Wyndham rotunda known as bray wyatt um at the young age of 36. So it was a very tough couple of, day, couple of days there. And I'm sure for many, it's still kind of tough and raw and very sad. Um, you know, Terry Funk was, you can't say the word legend enough. You know, he's such a, such an influence to the business on top of that. He, you know, a lot of times you'll see wrestlers today and they'll kind of have a bit of like a gritty outlaw vibe to them and and kind of like that violent vibe and they brawl and everything and you'll hear people say oh he's got a little little terry funk in him you know just to show you how how you know influential he was you hear that a lot i believe i've i've in the past i said it about you know moxley i kind of feel a little terry funk from him uh he was in the business so long you know he he debuted i believe i looked up i think it's like 19 let me see. Yeah, he started in 1965. Had a career that spanned 50 years. Unreal. He was 79 when he passed away, if I didn't already mention that. Um, and part of a legendary wrestling family, you know. Brother Dory Funk Jr., father Dory Funk Sr. And there's a lot of things, you know, I think he'll be remembered for. I mean, when I think about Terry Funk, some of my first, like, things that jump to my head are obviously my favorite match of his is that Ric Flair I quit match from Wrestle War 89, or um, pardon me, from uh, Clash of the Champions New York Knockout 89. Uh, a couple months prior at Wrestle War 89 is when Flair beat Steamboat in the third match of their trilogy to win back the um, world title, the NWA world title at the time. And Funk was at ringside because he was one of the judges in the event that a match between those two once again went to a 60-minute draw. And after the match, he kind of lays out a challenge to Flair, and Flair doesn't accept. And Terry Funk attacks him and ends up uh, pile-driving him through the through a table, which that was at ringside, which, I mean, nowadays that's just, you know, another spot. Guys would pop back up and wrestle another 15, 20 minutes, it feels like. But um, back then it was just such a violent angle. And I, and I believe I have, I have images in my mind of, of Ric Flair doing backstage um, pre-tape interviews with him wearing a neck brace and really selling it. So eventually they had this I quit match and it's just such a good example in wrestling of how you can keep what you're doing in the ring relatively simple, but if you do it so well with such this violent intent behind it, it just works so good. And that, that really is one of the biggest strengths um, when I think of Terry Funk is everything he did, you know, even like the simple things, you know, throwing punches, putting people in holds, everything he did felt like it had such a violent 
intent behind it to hurt his opponent, which is why he works so great, you know, as a heel. Um, eventually, he quits the flare after, you know, locked in the figure four. And what is, I mean, it's not like it wasn't even the longest match in the world. I think it went like 18 minutes. People go, go back and check it out. It's just such a good match. Um, you know, he was wrestling so long, and, and then that match was at a time when, by wrestling standards then, that's very different today. Both those men were in their 40s, and so there's people saying that they were, you know, on the downside, maybe should be wrapping up their career soon. So they both went out there to with something to prove and just totally proved it. And then, you know, going on into the 90s, you know, as Funk may have not been as athletic, that's when he became more hardcore and started doing the death matches and everything. And really, it's funny because his we had was in the business for so many years prior to that, you know, was more of a, a Southern style wrestler similar to to his brother and his father. But now I think most people think back on him and they think of the the deathmatch hardcore legend, you know, myth of uh, myth almost, you know, mythical feeling almost uh, of Terry Funk. You know, nineties he gets into ECW, he's doing a lot of stuff there. Uh, you can't say the words uh, exploding barbed wire deathmatch without thinking of Terry Funk, the legendary he won when he had an FMW in 1993 against uh, Atsushi Onita. And that's the infamous one where he slides, uh, after Onita won, wins, he slides back in the ring and he's smacking Terry Funk, you know, tapping him on the face, trying to rouse him as the timer's ticking down and he can't wake him up. So Onita jumps on top of him for cover in a moment of respect for his enemy and wanting to save him. Uh, the explosion goes off, and, and yes, before you ask, it looks a thousand times better than what happened at AW Revolution. Um, you know, and, and the barb, the legend of Deathmatch Barbed Wire and Terry Funk goes on. I mean, 1994 over in IWA in Japan, he enters the King of the Deathmatch tournament and ends up in the finals against Cactus Jack, who was really making a name for himself at the time. Um, and they have a... I think the full name of the match tip was a no ropes barbed wire exploding barbed wire death match. <laughs> but you know, basically it was a barbed wire death match with the explosions and instead of ring ropes, they had barbed wire, which is very similar to their one. Um, and Cactus Jack, Cactus Jack is a guy who his career will, ever, will forever be tied to Terry Funk. The matches they had, the, the blood they spilled, um, they were enemies, they were partners and just did so much great work together. Um, you know, over in ECW, there's the infamous shot, which I'm sure people have seen, um, at Heat Wave 94, where the team of Terry Funk and Cactus Jack hit the ring after Public Enemy, who, um, Public Enemy's match, and Public Enemy was one of the, like, definitely one of the hottest acts in those early 90s ECW years, the, the tag team, and they attack him, and then at one point, you know, definitely on the hard camera, you can see Cactus Jack do it. And I think to the side, uh, Terry Funk does as well. They look out at someone in the crowd and they say, toss me a chair. And they toss them a chair. And then another chair comes in and another chair. And then before you know it, everybody in the ECW arena is throwing chairs in the ring in this unbelievable scene. Eventually, Jack and uh, Funk bail. They get out of there. But it ends with this mound of chairs in the ring and public enemy buried underneath it and by all means it was an extremely dangerous and terrible situation that should never happen again but it just added to the mythos that was ecw that vision of those chairs flying in the ring unreal and then obviously people i think what most people um 
their first thought probably with Terry Funk uh, is Barely Legal 1997, which was ECW's very first, they finally, after all the people trying to stop it because of their more graphic content, they finally get on pay-per-view. And, um, you know, which if you go on the WWE Network or on, on Peacock, it might be a little confusing because you'll see like shows like Heat Wave, which, you know, like I just mentioned Heat Wave 94, but those were just like, you know, big cards they put on ECW Arena. They weren't actual pay-per-views. So Barry Legal 97 is their very first pay-per-view. And the main event is Terry Funk, who at that time had to have been, I mean, he had to have been over 50, I believe. Um, well, I mean, it's 2023. He was 79. So subtract, uh, oh no, uh, subtract, you know, 26 years. So yeah, he's like 53. And uh, this was in April of that year. And the main event was a three-way dance, which had elimination rules for those who don't remember. And it was uh, Terry Funk against Sandman and Stevie Richards. And the winner of the match would then immediately have a title match against then ECW world champion Raven. And there was definitely, there was a, a program that had been going on with Raven. You know, you have this old legend veteran of the business and the young upstart Raven. And, and they told a really good story. Um, so Funk wins the three-way dance. And he's beaten. He's exhausted. He's bloodied. And then immediately, here comes Raven, who one of the top heels in the promotion at the time. And, and one of the, he was the world champion, obviously one of the biggest acts um, comes to the ring immediately for that title match. And it doesn't go really long, but it didn't need to. And there was some interference by uh, Raven stable at the time. It was, you know, his posse kind of, which was referred to as a, uh, as Raven's flock. And then Tommy dreamer, long time nemesis and rival of Raven, who was on commentary for the world title match hits the ring Helps out Funk, hits the DDT on Raven, and Funk gets the pin. And it's just an amazing scene of, like I said, the the 50-something-year-old legend in this business, in this company with all these young, hardcore people and this crazy shit that they're doing, holding that ECW titles, beaten and bloodied. And as the legend goes, you know, Funk wins. The pay-per-view goes off the air just minutes before, due to technical issues, their feed would have cut. And goddamn, that's just so ECW. If you can't describe anything more ECW, that that's it. Another thing I always love about Funk's legacy is that he was such a legend and known by so many um, in multiple professional wrestling hall of fames. You know, inspirations for so many wrestlers on what they would do, um, and he did it all really without WWE slash F. I mean, he spent a cup of coffee there in like '85 to '86, and then again in. Uh, 97 and 98 when he was doing the chainsaw charlie gimmick and and teaming up again with, with cactus jack <clears throat> most notably having the uh, dumpster match against the new age outlaws at wrestlemania 15 um or no 14 uh and you know it was kind of like sting you know very similar to sting you know a legend in the business hall of famer and did it really without being a part of what for decades was the most globally or, or, you know, or nationally known wrestling product. I mean, I can't say the word legend enough. And it, it really felt like a, a true outlaw, you know, when you consider the minimal time he spent in, in WWE and, and what he meant. Um, you know, him, we kind of, it's still, I mean, incredibly sad. But 
it was, you know, something that we unfortunately all knew was kind of coming. You know, I believe in like 2016 or 17, he had surgery for like a herniated disc or something. And the doctors had told him like, hey, you need to like no travel for a little while. You got to mend up. And he didn't listen. And he took a long car drive um, out to do a show for one of uh, Tommy Dreamer's, I believe, Tommy Dreamer's House of Hardcore events, obviously, you know, their ECW connections are good pals. And, and I mean, that was a lot of what, you know, going into like the 2000s. I mean, in the late 2000s, Funk did pop back up in WWF when they did their ECW one night stand shows, obviously. But, you know, towards the tail end of his in-ring career, it was really just, you know, sporadic here or their appearances for like, you know, indie shows or, you know, had a, you know, a buddy who was putting some kind of event or indie car together he'd help him out and and i guess you know didn't listen to doctors and traveled and then that's when his health really started taking a turn for the worse um so i mean funk will ever forever be remembered to use the word one more time as like that outlaw you know you think of like the shirts that say funk you and have the the you know drawn picture of the the bloodied terry funk with the bandana tied around his head and and uh you know, it was funny because he was such a heel for so long in his career, but he really, um, he, it was funny because if he didn't, you know, really kind of pump his voice up to sound more heelish and screaming, he, he will, is definitely known and will be remembered for that, that soft spoken, almost, you know, kind of crackly voice. Um, that was great because if he ever needed to go from crazy yelling heel and then turn on the emotional and the, the sympathy, he could do it with that voice of his. And I think one of the greatest things about funk that makes it, so sad i mean death is always sad people but what really like adds to this one is that i i mean been a wrestling fan all my life i've listened and watched so many interviews from wrestlers and heard so many stories and i don't think i have ever heard someone utter a bad word about terry funk he was truly one of the good ones i think the only thing i heard was and it was a funny story a tongue-in-cheek story uh, on the something to wrestle with podcast with Conrad Thompson and Bruce Pritchard. I, my memory serves me correct. They tell a story. Um, and Pritchard talks about how, you know, when, when Terry Funk, you know, would, uh, you know, was ready to like, kind of like get out of there, needed a break. Um, he would, you know, say, ah, horse got sick, got to head back to the farm. <laughs> and that's not even a bad thing. That was just kind of like a joke. So, yeah, I mean, one of the good ones, only good things have ever been said about Terry Funk. As I said, you know, Terry Funk was getting up there and had health issues, so super sad you saw it coming. Bray Wyatt, that news dropped on Thursday. I was just, it was whiplash. Totally blindsided. Obviously, people make the connections how similar of a of a shock like it was to his friend and former tag partner or stablemate, Brody Lee, who wrestled as Luke Harper in WWE. <clears throat> and, I mean, I, I was on Twitter, or X, whatever you want to call it, and I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. And I scrolled past a post from, I think it was like IGN. This was shortly after, you know, Triple H had announced it and all the news had got out. And I scroll past it, you know, and I kind of just like, as I'm scrolling, my eyes catch like the picture of Bray Wyatt and some of the words in the little, uh, you know, post. And I like stopped, you know, a few seconds later. And I was like, wait, what did that say? And I scrolled back up and I, I honestly couldn't believe it. Um, you know, I guess he had been battling some um, tough illnesses. I think he... I, Sean Ross Sapp sent out a tweet where he said he had got permission from the family because they wanted to clear up some misconceptions that he had got COVID and it exasperated 
a heart issue. And, you know, there was recent reports that it seemed like he kicked out and, you know, he was getting better and he would be back soon. And unfortunately, this happened. Um, also a member of a wrestling family. His father, uh, real name Wyndham Rotunda. His father is uh, was Mike Rotunda, who is most likely most remembered by wrestling fans as Erwin R. Scheister, a.k.a. IRS, back when WWE had more of the overtop occupational gimmicks. Um, his brother, who wrestles as uh, Bo Dallas, um, so also from a wrestling family. He got in the business, I think, in like 09, quickly, you know, because of, you know, his father, you know, having a good relationship with WWE, who's able to help him out and get him to uh, into developmental. 2010, he was already making his main roster debut. And this is a credit to him, because his career could have went way different after this. He debuted in 2010 along with Michael McGillicuddy, who uh, will go on to be known as Curtis Axel. You know, member of the B, the B team, all that stuff. Son of uh, Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning. And made his debut on the main roster as new members of, like, Nexus. Um, and his name was Husky Harris. You know, because he was a little little round, had the, you know, a little bit of the extra weight in the face. And I guess people in FCW were like, you're Husky, we're calling you Husky Harris. <laughs> and that could be a death sentence for a lot of wrestlers. But almost in a turn of fortune, his main roster run wasn't very long before he was written off um, after, like, a punt to the head by Randy Orton and uh, was written off TV and ended up going back down to FCW, which would then shortly later on become NXT. And it was down there, I believe, in 2012 when the Wyatt family was born, hooked up with Luke Harper and Eric Rowan. And, and man, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that I talked over the moon about everything Bray Wyatt did or loved all his matches. That would be disingenuous. But Wyatt family... Like 2012, 2014, early Wyatt family, that was some good shit, people. Uh, the vignettes were great. And it had, you know, a lot of people when they saw it were kind of like got that Waylon Mercy feel. Um, and he you know, was more of like this creepy backwoods cult-like figure. And uh, did really well in, in FCW slash NXT. And then eventually debuted after a, a weeks of, of vignettes on raw they debuted on, i believe july 8th of 2012 <clears throat> and they got hot and they were they were on the roster at the same time as you know um the shield and there was this instance where it was like wow probably the two best factions when you looked at like talent and wwe's ability to push them and you know, book them, probably the two most successful factions, like success will be the best word, of like young wrestlers that WWE had done in a long time. Both of them worked out way better than the Nexus did, obviously. And eventually in 2014, I mean, their paths just finally crossed. And people, I, I got to tell you, if you're going to go back and watch some Bray Wyatt matches, go watch any of those six man matches between the Shield and the Wyatt family. I mean, obviously, I, I put the Shield on like the top of my list if you said, people who groups that put on the greatest six man matches this year, it was just their specialty and Wyatt Bellamy was obviously very good too and they just put on some bangers um you know I mean I think all their matches like I looked it up earlier because I was kind of interested none of those six man matches they had you know not the ones on Raw not the one at Elimination Chamber 2014 and this is saying something when you consider you know who was grading it um 
Meltzer gave none of them below four stars. They were all four, four and a half, four and a quarter. And they, and you know, they're, they're great matches and, and the crowds were so into both those factions. And, you know, it was unfortunate because the wife told me was running hot and, you know, it felt like there was a real groundswell. And I, I have always said this, that I felt like there was a really good baby face in Bray Wyatt. And I always hated that they never went with it, you know? Um, you know, they break up the Wyatt family and, and they eventually brought them back together. But that's when he started doing the whole new face of fear and the destroyer of worlds. And it went from being the more like grounded, creepy cult-like gimmick that I really enjoyed to this more spooky supernatural gimmick which that's when it kind of started to lose me more um personally um but you know he kept adapting tweaking the character you know as time went on and after he was out a little while with an injury eventually we started getting vignettes and and videos of him and something called the firefly funhouse and it was weird but by god it was intriguing people were like where is this going what is this and then at SummerSlam 20 it was 2018. Let me double check that because I did jot it down here. 2019, The Fiend debuted. And I, I was very critical of a lot of The Fiend stuff. It wasn't for me. But that first Fiend match, that debut, was so perfect. The music, the like that metal remix of his entrance theme. Um, I mean, I still it's still on my phone, like on my playlist in the car. I still bumped it. It's so good. He comes out great entrance he has the lantern that's the head of bray wyatt and he beats finn balor in like three minutes the match wasn't important it was the presentation and it took over i mean you go back then there's people on twitter who are like push him to the moon he should beat everybody win all the titles like people were like wow they have something on their hands here and they did but once again i always said that should be a baby face that is the new undertaker that is the the dark character that eventually all the heels who have been underhanded and doing all this shit and getting away with with cheating and everything and are cocky and arrogant eventually they get their comeuppance when they cross paths with the fiend the same way it would happen with the undertaker and i was so upset when they decided to go with him as as a heel personally i was like god that is that is a babyface gimmick that should happen 10 times over i mean it was just man unfortunate but you know i will still always look back on on that that run with the wyatt family at the beginning was amazing uh, if you want a great singles match to go watch with Bray, go watch Royal Rumble 14, him versus Daniel Bryan. Great match. Great match. Most people have probably seen the big spot where he does the sister Abigail and Bryan into the the uh, guardrail or the barricade. But, God, that match was a banger. And, you know, you got released. Budget cuts came back. The White Rabbit vignettes were doing really well, creating a lot of buzz. People will definitely remember that heartfelt promo he gave shortly after he came back where he really kind of opened up and talked. Um, and then we really never got to see entirely where I think that version of Bray Wyatt would have went, you know? Um, you know, they had like the Mountain Dew dark, Mountain Dew dark out or black light match over the LA night. And, and I, I just never felt like where they fully wanted to go with that character. They never really got a chance to get there before, he was supposed to have a match with Lashley at WrestleMania 39, but then he got sick and that got canned. Uh, you know, the thing with the Wyndham Rotunda passing Bray Wyatt is like, 
you know, like I go back to Terry Funk, you know, it's, it's, it's so sad to lose a legend. Um, but it's also part of like, there's, I, I feel like there's like this unwritten contract we all agree with, with the universe. Um, that eventually time does come for us all. Um, you know, that even, and, and fortunately people pass away. But just like with Brody, when that news broke and I was just, I was honestly devastated about that one too. Um, when they, it happens so young, you feel betrayed. You feel like the universe broke the contract and it's just not fair. Not something that we as human beings agreed to. And there's been a lot of, you know, another one, I, I can't really think of any negative story I heard about Bray Wyatt. Um, and so many wrestlers have come out and said so many great things. A bunch of wrestlers I saw on Twitter went and got his like Firefly logo tattooed on them. And I even believe I read that the tattoo parlor that did it is donating all the proceeds that were set up uh, for the charity that was set up to help support Bray Wyatt and his family. He was had, had some kids. I know he was engaged, I believe, to be married to WWE ring announcer Jojo Offerman. God, just so sad. And, uh, I mean, there's been fans coming out talking about kind of similar to what I said. And I wrote an article on legendary Buffalo Sabres hockey announcer Rick Jenneret. And I mentioned how something I wanted to tell him was that it was his calls and going back and listening to his great calls that got me through some dark times. And I've seen a lot of fans online come out and talk about how um, Bray, you know, and what he did helped them get through some, some dark times. And, you know, with Funk and Wyatt, I, I got to say with with them and, and a lot of, you know, wrestlers and stuff like that, you know, to have the ability to, to do what you do <clears throat> or take the time, the extra second at an autograph signing or while you're coming out of the arena to say hi to a fan and to have the ability to help someone who's having a real bad day or going through a rough time and you give them the ability to turn their brain off for a second and not think about those things that are upsetting them or, or giving them the tough times and and help them get through it. That's a gift of an ability that should never be taken for granted. And um, I hope that they know, both those men know that that's something that they had, that gift. And lastly, you know, second time I'm having to say something like this in like three weeks, but on behalf of Talent Alone, um, we want to send obviously our condolences to the Funk and Wyndham's family and, and that there is nothing but love and good thoughts from us coming your way and uh we thank both those men for you know members of your family for everything they did to entertain us over the years so with that long opening segment i know i made it sound like i was going to cut in real quick and move on but just had a lot i wanted to say kind of thinking back about both wrestlers over the last few days um we're going to go ahead and get the show started we are going to what you're about to hear is our brand new entrant or uh opening theme whatever you want to call it that yours truly threw together and I had a couple ideas for like a little soundbite I wanted to do to kick it off um and then after what happened this past week I kind of was like oh no that's the idea um that's what we're gonna do so hope you guys like it and I'll be right back uh with some more uplifting talk on the other side thank you guys we're here
All right, welcome everybody to the Talent Alone Pro Wrestling Podcast, aka TAPWP, aka the greatest professional wrestling podcast on God's green earth. I'm your host, Mike Regan. So excited to be with you again today. So happy and grateful for you taking the time to listen. And uh, just so you know, if anybody out there is telling people about the podcast, the Talent Alone Pro Wrestling Podcast, um, you're contractually obligated as an ambassador of the show to mention that it is also referred to as T-A-P-W-P, and you have to do the Britt Baker DMD finger point. That's the best way to get it across, get people to listen. Speaking of Britt Baker DMD, we are going to have a lot of AEW talk today. (laughs) Sorry about it if it's not your cup of tea, but damn, a lot's been going on. So that's what we're going to jump into first. All in talk, all out talk. And then if we got time uh, left, I got a little WWE talk, some things I want to mention some goings-ons, and all that good stuff, but I can't waste any more time. We got to get into the AEW Talk All Elite Wrestling put on this past Saturday, just two days ago, or just, no, 24 hours ago, a day ago from when I'm recording, they put on what is statistically, you can't argue, <laughs> the biggest professional rest live wrestling, the really killing my credibility and grandstanding on this comment, um, biggest live professional wrestling event in history that is right it was announced 81,035 tickets sold now that is an important thing that AEW was up front and bragged about how many tickets did they sell to the event 81,035 that is a record people you can't argue it it's stats now a lot of times WWE instead of starting with announcing that number will first announce total attendance which is where things can get weird Because as Tony Khan mentioned in his post-show presser, that if you added in comp tickets, if you added in all like this, everybody who's there, people working the event, you know, everybody there for AW, you know, all that, all those people, he did say was closer to 90,000. And that's the number that WWE will usually initially report. Um, Sometimes they will even bump it up a little more, which you can't blame them for the good press. But like I said last week, then they tell the investors on their call the actual number. So no, it's not some sort of you know, investor fraud or whatever the term is. Um, so shut up, dumb people in the comments. Why do I read comments on Twitter posts? Like, like you shouldn't go, especially on a wrestling like tweet. Don't go into the comments. You're just going to end up angry, mad and gaslit. But anyway, on top of the massive attendance, a $10 million gate for AEW. I want you to let that sink in. As I mentioned last week, or I, no, I mentioned in our AEW predictions our, uh, article for All In, which if you haven't read yet, I don't know what you're doing with your time. You should be reading it. Um, this company's been around for a little over four years now. Their first event was May of 2019 at uh, in Vegas at the MGM Grand for AEW Double or Nothing. A little over four years in, they just had a $10 million gate. That is unbelievable. I mean, them to just pull million-dollar gates like they have a few times now for pay-per-views and whatnot is already super impressive for their short run. But a $10 million gate, it just goes to show that the biggest thing that has been missing from a viable alternative or eventual competitor to WWE, and this has been for all promotions, ROH, TNA, everything, is having, I'll say it, deep pockets. You got, if you have the money backing to sign talent, to put on big shows that have a big presentation to make you look legit and big time, and you know you can get a good 
television partner, it makes all the difference. You know, TNA did not have this kind of money. Even when Panda Energy bought it, you know, you know, Dixie Carter running it and everything. Even that was more like, a, you know, we're not spending that much money, though, on the pro wrestling thing, people. Like, sell down, you know? And uh, this didn't have the, the backing or the TV relationships behind it, obviously, because, I mean, no offense to Spike TV if it's still around. Not quite, you know, Turner, which has been around much longer. Anyway. With all that said, the event happens at, you know, watched it yesterday it was it was the afternoon if you are a uh, an american like me it was at night if you were over in uh, jolly old england and goddamn they put on a great show guys you know you could have argued and questioned was the card big enough for the event and there's arguments both ways on that i was kind of on the fence um leaning more towards eh, wish it was a little bit more of a stacked bigger card all things considered but if you watch that show they put on a good show and most importantly, the most important thing I felt like they needed to do to help their overall viewing audience was the presentation. And seeing 80,000 people with the big setup over the ring covering it, it looked like a WrestleMania. And that's such a big thing for anybody who catches a glimpse of that on, on, you know, on Twitter, on Facebook, on MySpace, on uh, Tubi or whatever, uh, a daily motion, they catch that. Like, Holy shit. You know, that, has to be some sort of big event like that that's a big deal what's going on you know it's kind of what's going on over there you know what's what's going on over there all those people over there all those flashy lights uh, what's going on over there Eighty thousand people packed in eighty-one thousand thirty-five packed in to see this wrestling show it makes you look legit and big time all right but enough of me you know giving them their flowers on the crowd they drew and the, the presentation let's talk about all in i had a few things i was thinking about doing to kind of talk about this show a couple different segment styles to attack it Thought about doing a stock up, stock down. However, we got All Out coming up next weekend and WWE Payback. So I think I'm going to save it. We're going to do a big post-pay-per-views, big old two-company stock up, stock down next week. So look forward to that. Put it on your calendar. This week I decided I'm going to go a little more free form, a little more fluid. Go through the card, talk about the shows. But more importantly, I'm going to give out some awards, some very specific prestigious awards to people who are involved in these matches. So I guess you could call this the very first TAPWP pay-per-view awards. Insert Grammy music here. No, insert Oscar music here. Fuck the Grammys. <laughs> and definitely not the ESPYs. <laughs> Let's get into it. We're not talking about the pre-show. Sorry about it. Punk and Joe open it up. Great choice for an opener. Separate the real world's championship match. Far away from the real one. Hot opener. Good stuff. Go about 14 minutes. Punk gets the win. Um, good match. There's some matches on this card later that I would have said, take a few minutes off that, give it to Punk and Joe, or get rid of it completely, and give it some t- more time to Punk and Joe. Because really, the match was good. I really enjoyed it. But God, I want, it went, they went 14. I wanted like five, six more minutes. And I think they could have done something really good. But it was still a good match. The Baddest Motherfucker Award. First one coming out. That is being awarded to Samoa Joe. You can call it the baddest motherfucker or the coolest motherfucker award. It don't matter. Joe is that guy. I mean, he is so cool. <laughs> I sounded really nerdy the way I said that. Um, but man, he comes out and he's all business. And I mean, the, the, I, 
I'm at a loss for words. But the real thing why I gave him this one is because he does the same spot, and I could have given it the never gets old award if I wanted to. But the spot where someone he's like you know gets up and is acting kind of sick, you know staggered, and then someone goes up to do a top rope move, and then he just walks away. You can't you can't beat that. That's just some cool shit right there. That's a bad motherfucker. So we're gonna call this award the Samuel L. Jackson Baddest Motherfucker Award, and it goes to Samoa Joe. All right, I said CM Punk, so I guess I should get into it now. There's more drama, people. And I just can't take it anymore. (laughs) I'm exhausted. You know, I feel like I'm in a relationship, like married people who just fight all the time. And then eventually when they have like their breakdown moment before they decide to get divorced, they're like, I'm tired. I'm tired of fighting all the drama. I am exhausted. And that's how I'm starting to feel. I was looking forward to it. I'm going to go on this podcast. I'm going to talk about All In. It was a great show. I'm going to talk about this. I'm going to talk about that. And I'm not going to have to talk about any CM Punk drama. But no, that just couldn't happen. We couldn't put the entire roster of AEW in the same building without something fucking happening. So here we go. Let's get into it. Hook and Jack Perry wrestled for the um, the very coveted FTW title on the pre-show. It was the last match on the pre-show. Second match or whatever. Um... Perry came out in a limo, and then eventually the match spilled out over there, and they were doing spots, and Perry pointed out the windshield, which eventually he took a bump onto. I believe it was like a suplex or something. And he looked into the camera and said, you know what that is? That's real glass. Cry me a river. Boom. Jack Perry roasting CM Punk. This did not go over well. And apparently, like literally, like I got on my phone to look at after the opener. It may have been during the second match. I glanced at my phone for a moment. Because, you know, even though I'm watching the show, there's some people who I like their coverage of it, and I want to kind of read what they think of the matches. And uh, I opened my phone, and it is a... Got a notification from Patron, Patreon, from Fightful Select. There's a report. Jack Perry, CM Punk get into altercation backstage, and I'm just like, fuck! (laughs) Here we go. So, allegedly, and throughout the day yesterday, there was many reports of people obviously from differing camps. Punk started it. Perry started it. Uh, you know, Perry shoulder bump Punk. Punk pie face Perry. Put him in a, a headlock, you know. Attempted to set him on fire. I don't know. It just, it, it they went back for it. But we got more, a little more clarification so far. So, the latest report I read, Fightful Select has given out some details. The latest report I read that came out today was from Wade Keller over at PW Torch. I said it last week, I'll say it again. Go VIP, people. I love to support the uh, other people covering wrestling. Not quite as good as me, obviously, but the ones that I like. So over at PW Torch, he has a, a pretty lengthy report on it where eyewitnesses say that Perry, this is as like, you know, Perry's match is ending or had ended. Punk's the opener, so he's there. And I mean, the timeline's a little weird. Um, I feel like there was a little bit of time between the opener, but I guess it would make sense that Perry's coming through and Punk's probably already up there getting himself in the zone for the opener. So I guess guess that makes sense. Um, And I guess Punk had said to him, according to this PW Torch report, he said, eyewitnesses say that Punk said, do we have a problem? And Perry allegedly retorted that it was Punk who started something, who uh, started it, you know, saying stuff online to make, Perry look bad I guess I, I guess inferring that it was Punk in his camp that put out details on the alleged for those who don't know I mentioned it last week um, 
the whole glass comment came from a story that I guess there was a disagreement backstage because Punk is taking his position to be a very influential voice for Collision to want to make it different from Dynamite and have a real veteran leadership role. Punk's talking a lot of interviews of how much he, as much as of how like a punk he was, <laughs> no pun intended, you know, and kind of like the straight edge punk kind of vibe he gave outspoken he still all throughout his career you know you hear stories he's talked about how much how respectful he always was to veterans in the business unless they were pieces of shit you know um and so i think that's a big thing for him is to also kind of assume a role like that and apparently he had a disagreement with perry where he was like perry wanted to use real glass for a spot and punk was like don't do that that's unnecessarily dangerous um there was a disagreement allegedly i heard allegedly Initially, it was reported allegedly that Punk accused Perry of wanting to do a dangerous spot like that so he could get a week off. Fightful reported that, just like some clarification on that, is Perry was already scheduled to have a week off afterwards. So, like, either Punk saying that didn't happen or it, you know, wasn't something Perry was thinking. But that that's just, like, an unnecessary point. No one can get into their heads. But that's what this all stems from. Uh, and allegedly... According to another one of the sources in AEW that PW Torch talked to, Punk threatened to quit because he has been very outspoken backstage about how he wants a drama-free environment, which is a little ironic because he's involved in so much of the drama. However, he wants a drama-free environment. Now, for the most part, that's been the case, you know, between pay-per-views when Collision and Dynamite are really running separately on their own, there hasn't really been any drama, you know. Punk is over on Collision. He can kind of dip his hands with to help mold how things go on back there um, and on that show. And, you know, there you go. So it's, it's kept certain parties separated. Uh, and then over the last couple of weeks, all this drama has been happening. But allegedly he threatened to quit because he wants a drama-free environment, which also was allegedly part of the beef with uh, Ryan Nemeth because Ryan Nemeth made that comment on Twitter, like literally the softest man in the world. And in multiple reports, or in, I know in the one report, one of, Punk's things was like, dude, I'm trying to like not have a lot of drama and you're saying shit like that and stirring things up. And I think that was the beef here is Punk's like, why'd you have to say that on camera? Why are you trying to stir up drama? And I love CM Punk, but he's not the kind of guy who's going to like, if someone like takes a shot or says something to be sarcastic towards him, he's not going to let it go. He's going to say something. And so you can argue, you could argue both ways. You could say, Perry, why would you do that? Why would you poke the bear? You knew it was going to cause a problem. You could say, Punk, you're like twice his age. Just let it go. He's a cocky younger wrestler. Just let it go. Or you could say, maybe we should have had, maybe like when Perry finished his match, we should have quickly ushered him through Gorilla to the back while distracting Punk over here to try to avoid that. But, you know, hindsight is uh, 2020. Allegedly, uh, production was notified and they were worried about potentially having to change the match over, over the kerfuffle or delaying the start. Um, but luckily, you know, CM Punk, he's a pro's pro. He shook it off, regrouped, went out there, had a banger. Uh, and then one AEW source apparently told Wade Keller at the torch that TK has fostered an environment where young wrestlers without a lot of experience on a national scale feel free to go into business for themselves. Now that comment probably come from, came from someone on Punk's side, cause I'm sure that's how Punk feels. You know, the hangman thing, this thing, 
all this stuff where it's like people who have not been in the business as long as him made as much money as him been to the highs as highs of him are saying shit and stirring up drama so i could get why that whoever said that if they're in that camp why they would think that um you know when aw started and there was all this talk about the wrestlers being super involved and running what they were doing there were people who were like that sounds great and beautiful in theory but that can get you in a lot of trouble it you know these are the kind of things you know and this kind of ties into the last little tidbit here which where keller says a source close to management says he believes that perry is going to receive more punishment because his initial comment started it you know he didn't need to make that comment on air he didn't need to go there and he kind of you know kind of lit the fuse to start this whole thing now punk um not punk tk opened up his uh presser and said i made i've you know i was made aware of an altercation that happened backstage i cannot comment on it i'm not going to comment on it today there is an eternal investigation going on which is what we kept hearing during the brawl out situation you know with the elite and punk and a steel biting people that there is an internal investigation going on. We cannot comment on it. How is this internal investigation also going to take months on months and then us to not get any details on how it all shook out. The people are just going to come back on TV. Like, is that also what we're going to do here, Tony? Cause I feel like this internal investigation take like, you know, a, like a day to talk to people who are in gorilla and be like, what happened? Okay. Well, of all the people who were around when it happened, uh, these are all the details that everybody said. So this is what happened. Internal investigation done. But there is a belief, according to this source close to management, that Perry, farther down the food chain, made the snide comment, may be more likely to get some of the punishment or have ramifications. Now, who knows? The internal investigation could come back with some damning news, and it could go the other way. But all I know is I am sick of the CM Punk drama. As someone who will wholeheartedly and sometimes tongue-in-cheek for fun just to poke at people who are anti-punk, defend him till the cows come home. I'll defend him till the cows, the pigs, the roosters, you know, until all the farm animals come home. But I got to say, man, I am exhausted. Um, I'm not putting it all on punk, just in general, AW and the drama. I'm exhausted. I can't keep talking about it, but I feel like when I come on this show, it's, it's the elephant in the room, you know? And, you know, as they say, if the old phrase is, if there's an elephant in the room, you got to yank on the trunk. I think that's it. I don't know. Back to the match. The last thing I'm going to say about Punk Joe is, um, once again, hot take. And unfortunately, I hate to say it because it involves my guy Punk. The real world's title is dumb. Wrap it up. Move it on. When it when it first came to light, like a few weeks ago, and they still had like a month to all in and all out, I was like, okay, this is going to be a vehicle set up Punk versus MJF, you know, for the, you know, Punk never lost the belt. MJF's the current champion. We're going to settle the beef. We're going to figure that out. Who knows if the altercation had ramifications on the plan they were going to do after All In. We can't really answer to that yet. But um, wrap this thing up soon. Because this just fucking doesn't make sense. Because, like, on commentary, they're like, CM Punk and the, the real world's champion. And they put quotes around it. And, you know, but they announce it as the real world championship and they have sanctioned matches for it. So it's like somewhere in between like, yeah, we recognize it and no, we, we recognize it, but we're also going to put massive air quotes around it every time we say it, just wrap it up. It's unnecessary. All right, moving on. Moving along. 
Next up, they really opened this pay-per-view and just started like throwing out like some of their bigger matches, which I, I kind of dug it. I like the, the pace of the show. Um, and it also went, not counting pre-show, it only went four hours. So nice job, TK. Um, FTR versus the Bucks. AW tag titles on the line. The title of greatest tag team in the world on the line. They go 21-45, and FTR picks up the win. This match was a banger. It might have been my match of the night. You know, the, my, my match of the night award might go here. It's up there. You know what? Screw it. I'm just going to say it because it's on my mind. Match of the year award. We're going to call this one the Daniel Bryan Memorial Match of the Night Award. Not year, sorry. Match of the Night Award. Match of the Show Award goes to this match. I love this match. Obviously, massive FTR fan. Obviously, also really like the Bucks and what they can do in the ring. Love the story here just because of the teams involved. It's great. Did they need to go meta with the build and talk about how on BTE, they started the whole FTR thing by saying it stood for Fuck the Revival. I don't know. Some people dig that. Some people don't. I will, in mentioning the letters FTR, give out an award. And uh, this is the Too Soon Sign Award. And this goes to the gentleman on the hard camera who had a sign that said FTR stands for uh, Forever the Revolver. Obviously a, a comment on Cash Wheeler's legal issues and i for one find it disgusting and too soon sir <laughs> uh match has some great near falls okay um matter of fact the second award it gets is the psych false finish of the night award because it had some great false finishes uh you know there's a moment a uh, wheeler took a bte trigger and he's down and hardwood knows he's like going there checking on his brother um well not literally brother but you know like my brother um, he's checking on him and he kind of stands up and he like rolls, he like kind of, you know, cocks the head and is like, ah, oh, damn it. Cause he knows the bucks are behind him. He knows what's coming. He turns into it, takes a shatter machine, takes a, takes a shatter machine, goes out of the ring. Um, and then they hit another BTE trigger on Wheeler. I was like, ah, fuck bucks one, which you know, bucks are great, but FTR till I die and great kick out there. Great false finish. There was the callback to their first match where Cash decided to once again go for the springboard 450. He misses. He eats two BTE triggers. He kicks out. Another great near fall. Um, these guys are just out here putting on a banger. The finish. Oh, let me talk about the finish. Can we talk about the finish? Setting up for the Meltzer driver. I believe Wheeler slips out and gets away from Matt Jackson, who was holding him. And then... Cash slides in the ring, catches Nick coming off on the springboard part, and hits him with the shatter machine. Top guys out. Love this match. Daniel Bryan Memorial Match of the Night Award winner. Stadium Stampede. Wasn't really, like, super hyped by in the, this match going into it, but I knew it was going to be a lot of, like, crazy bloody fun. Um, and it was. They brawled all over the place, you know. Uh, the members of BCC came out rocking the Peaky Blinder Peacoats. Um, good stuff. Violent craziness of you know if that's your kind of match you're gonna love it i will say uh orange cassidy picked up the win after he had uh put duct tape on his hand obviously sticky side out and stuck it in a glass bucket and then hit a uh orange glassy punch on the swiss superman or whatever uh claudio castagnoli for the win but i gotta ask like is it is it time like is it just me or could bcc kind of use a win like they came out on the losing end of the elite feud. They lost this one. Like two things. 
let's get the BCC a win somewhere and also let's settle down and no more stadium stampedes, anarchies in the arena, clashes in the Coliseum, uh, you know, fights in the farm, whatever. Let's just settle down. No more of those for a little while. Kind of killing the gimmick there, boys. But match super fun. The um, Avatar, a.k.a. Best Visual of the Night Award goes to two spots. And by Avatar, I don't mean the blue people. I mean, like, images that people would set their, like, little profile Avatar to on Discord or wrestling forums or whatever. Two, two of them, actually. He's gone to two people. One is John Moxley, who he took out, like, wooden skewers. And also, Moxley had a brand, um, which was really cool. Throwing out a little call out to like great Terry Funk. Um, but he takes out these like wooden skewers to use. Eventually, that backfires on him when Penta gets them. And Penta then like is like smacking them onto his head. And then when he stops, they're like stuck in there and all like hanging out. Really cool visual, really brutal visual. And then at the very end of the match, Mox gets taken out of the finish when. Uh, Eddie Kingston like runs him through a table in the corner. So after the match, they're both like slumped down in this corner and Kingston's kind of like slightly on top of Moxley. So Moxley's like basically behind him in this pileup and they cut to him and Moxley's not even, or Kingston's not even looking at Moxley and he's just flipping him off. Great visual. Uh, and another award I want to give out on this one is the broken Matt Hardy outfit change award. Remember, uh, like, the first stadium stampede, Matt Hardy, like, you know, went into, like, the pool of rejuvenation and then came out and he was a different version of Matt Hardy. And this will go to Penta Obscuro. He disappeared for a while. He was Penta El Ziero Miedo. Uh, he came out as Penta Obscuro, which looks the same, but was wearing different colors. I didn't pick up on it first, honestly, until Excalibur was like, it's Penta Obscuro! <laughs> um, that sounded more like... Uh, What's his face? Um, Mamma Mia, the bipolar rock and roller. I don't know why his name escapes me. Um, yeah, but moving on. Oh, also, I guess, you know, props to Alex Abrahantes because he came out rocking a different color coat too to match his boy. Then we got the uh, women's fatal four-way. Soraya picked up the win after eight minutes and 50 seconds. She hit the rampage, whatever her little DDT is called, on Tony Storm. Two awards I'm giving out for this one. The first one, I apologize. It's a little uncouth, but the you Award goes to Tony Storm. Came out rocking that like Marilyn Monroe hairdo. Looking top notch. Uh, beyond my, you know, very male comment. They put on a pretty good match. It only went 850. This is another one that like I wouldn't have mind if they threw him a couple more minutes. Um, Paige had an awesome entrance. They got We Will Rock You by Queen. She came out looking like a boxer with the whole entourage around her, her whole family. Uh, very cool. The other award that goes out in this match is the Thank God It's Over award. Or at least Thank God I Think It's Over to the outcast. It just wasn't working. Time to move on. All right? It just wasn't working. You know, you'd imagine that after, you know, Paige spray-painted Tony Storm in the eyes and then hit her to pin her that maybe we shouldn't, you know, put an end to that. You know, cut that, cut that, cut that. Like, it's time to move on. I will say, why did we put the belt on Sheeta? Couldn't you have gotten the same, like, done the same thing with Soraya if Storm had the belt going into All Out and then dropped it to Soraya? Because, I mean, I, I feel like it still would have led to what looks like the breakup of the Outcast. So I, I don't know why the Sheeta changed. Um, unless they just wanted to do, like, something to get some buzz and, and hopefully help the ratings. Just weird. Next up was the Coffin match. 
uh, Sting and that, that kid he carries around with him. Just kidding. Darby Allen against Swerve Strickland and Christian Cage. I got to be honest, I can't comment too much. This was the match I kind of zoned out during. I just wasn't, you know, as much as I love Christian Cage and Swerve Strickland, I knew they weren't going to win because um, Tony Khan refuses to ever give Swerve Strickland any wins. And also because of the match type, I was like, I think Darby is probably going to win the coffin match. But then again, The Undertaker did terrible and buried alive matches, so what do I know? Uh, so I kind of zoned out. I know the finish ended with Swerve, Swerve Strickland getting put in the casket by Sting. The... Uh, Award for this one is the Damn That Wasn't Cheap Award, and it goes to Sting and Darby Allen, kind of, really to TK for paying to get the rights, at least for one night, to Seek and Destroy. Metallica, you know, they don't put a low price on if you want to use their music for something, you know. They don't fuck around with that. Ask Lars Ulrich and Napster. He ain't fucking around. Give me my rights fees, bro. Um, so, yeah, match was fine. Once 16 minutes. This is one of the matches where I was like, yeah, let's cut some time off this and give it to the women. Give it to Punk Joe. It did not need 16 minutes. Neither this feud or this match warranted 16 minutes. Let's be honest here, people. And also, I love Sting. You know, every time, every pay-per-view, and you know, when he wrestles on Dynamite, he has a couple of those spots. They go, people are like, oh my God, I can't believe like 60-something-year-old Sting just did that crazy spot. I like it. But I'm worried because we're going to get to the point where he has a match, even if it's a tag match and he does some spots or he does something and it looks really bad. And I don't want that to be the last memory of sting. Cause the last memory of sting was almost him getting buckle bombed and his career ending on a neck injury. But luckily that didn't happen. So let's not tempt fate and still be left with a less than, um, desirable image for the end of sting's career. But then again, how many wrestlers can you honestly say say didn't go one match too many? You know, no matter how good of a send off, even Shawn Michaels, love him, favorite, arguably favorite of all time, greatest of all time, I will say right now. Um, WrestleMania 26, made events with The Undertaker, great match, he's retired, gets talked out to do that tag match in like Australia or Saudi Arabia against Taker and Kane, and the match was brutal. So, I mean, yeah, I guess too much to ask for a wrestler to call it on a high note next up we got london's own will osprey against chris jericho who was on dynamite supposed to be the baby face but then jumped Jer- jumped osprey in london at like an indie show or a rev pro show or something and then was a total heel with sammy guevara in his corner at the pay-per-view and osprey was in his hometown so, so he was over and he didn't turn on Callus, so he's still alive with Callus. Yeah, that whole thing's fucking weird. But anyway, very good match. Osprey picks up the win. Um, you know, there was a really good near fall where Jericho did the gimmick where he, like, almost runs into the ref, and he, like, grabbed Aubrey Edwards so she couldn't see him do the little back kick, little horse kick right to the the uh, the Ospreys. Um, and then he hit him with the Judas effect. And that was a pretty good near fall. Uh Osprey eventually went New Japan and hit like a hidden blade and a hidden blade and a Stormbreaker and picked up the win. Really good match. Um, two awards to give out here. One is the Back Up the Brinks Truck Bitch Award. And that goes to, however you want to frame it, Will Osprey slash Tony Khan. Because he's got, I mean, that contract comes up January 1st, 2024. I'm backing up the Brinks Truck to get me some Osprey full time in Dynamite because, God damn, is he good. He's good. And over the last couple of years in New Japan, last few years really, he's developed 
a awesome kind of personality. Promos, I think, are solid, uh, are pretty good. And he has a cocky personality, but it's one that I think can still work as a babyface. Obviously, he's like just one of the best wrestlers in the world right now. Back up the Brinks truck. And the other award, you know, this one's going to sound a little harsh, is the uh, crawled, crawled Up Your Own Ass Award. And that goes to Chris Jericho, who just had to do a live performance of Fozzie before his match, where he did the uh, Freddie Mercury Deo, you know, Deo thing, and then played Judas and... Now he forever will be like, I played in front of 80,000 people. <laughs> so great. Great for that. Next up, Trio's title. Went 10-50. Daddy asked in the acclaimed win. I didn't need this match on this card. Did anybody need this match on the card? Come on, let's be honest here, people. Did you need the match on this card? Did you all say no? No. Like, it was good. I'm happy that they got, like, the little moment for for Billy Gunn, you know, the, uh, the House of Black like handed him the titles at the end to show respect. The acclaimed cut a promo, or, you know, did a little talking at the end and said that they promised him that they would, you know, get him some gold back. And then they had the whole crowd scissor, um, you know, fun and all. But put this on all out. I just don't. I think once again, I think there was matches that needed a little more time, and I didn't need this match on this card. Sorry about it. The uh, only award I'm giving out for this match is the. Uh, do something award and this is directed at tony khan and the award goes to the house of black can we three men who are super talented honestly have a cool gimmick look really cool and intimidating and like i mentioned in my all-in predictions once again they bring them back on collision act like they're going to do something with them and then they don't i guess the only silver lining is getting them a fuck away from the trios titles which really don't mean much and honestly you could argue don't need to be a thing in AEW since they have way too many titles to begin with do something with House of Black. Brody King, Buddy Matthews. They could be a great tag team in the tag division. Alistair Black. He's a main event guy. Sorry, not Alistair Malachi. He's a main event guy. Start building him up to get in there. Do something. Then we get to the main event. MJF versus Adam Cole Bebe. Went 29 minutes. They did capture the ROH tag titles from Aussie Open earlier in the show. Really enjoyed the match. Um, they did a double pin. The whole crowd groaned and booed. Cole asked for five more minutes. MJFT saying no. And then he said something along the lines of, not five more minutes. You deserve, like, we're going to need way more because we're going until we have a winner in fucking Wembley. Crowd pops big. Some people, like, kind of nitpicked at some of the more cheesier spots in the match, but I actually really enjoyed it. And they did, like, the the... Rick Knox took a bump and MJF grabbed a chair and they kind of were like tossing it back and forth for one of them to do the Eddie Guerrero gimmick where they, you know, toss the chair to the guy, takes a flat back and waits for the ref to think that he hit him with the, the other guy hit him with the chair. So Cole eventually goes down and MJF has the chair. And so then he takes the chair and like wraps it around his neck and lays down. And Rick Knox stands up. He's like, what happened? Oh my God. Um, great match. There's some wild spots. Panama sunrise on the outside of the ring. Um, big spots on the steel steps you it kind of like had this vibe all match of like dear god they're going this far against their supposed brother and like you were kept expecting it to go too far and break up um mjf's entrance came out in like his devil garb and they had like someone pushing this big platform with like these girls and togas or something bowing to him like he's you know he's the devil they're worshiping the devil um it was kind of interesting because the vibe i got from his entrance 
was almost like uh this whole time leading up to it it was adam cole mjf you know you're my brother i love you everything's great and so that entrance was so like almost menacing that it kind of felt like almost like mjf being like oh yeah this is the real fucking me and now you're in trouble like i, I don't know i got a weird vibe from it i'm not sure if anybody else took it that way but i kind of did um rick knox gets the charles robinson ref bump award uh you know for some reason whenever i think of people who take like wild bumps refs i always think of charles robinson <laughs> the uh smaller blonde haired ref who's in wwe for a long time um and not only did he, he did the one ref bump and then <laughs> in this one you really got to shut your brain off for but cole's going for the panama sunrise and mjf pulls rick knox into it and he takes the panama sunrise now it's a little far-fetched that cole came off the ropes rick knox tucks rick Knox's head in between his legs but at that point it was too late he couldn't he could he couldn't pull out of the move and ended up Panama Sunrising. Like I said, the match was a lot of fun, so it was easy to get lost and not really nitpick that, but I heard some people do it. Um, and that's when we get um, poor Roddy Strong running out neck brace and all. Dear God, someone check on this man's neck. He's been wearing that brace for a while. And he comes in. He low blows MJF right in the Freedmans. And Adam Cole doesn't really – he kind of asks Roddy at first, like, what are you doing here? But then he decides to take advantage of the situation – Hits a Panama Sunrise, drops the boom, MJF kicks out, crowd goes nuts. Maybe this should have won the false finish of the night award because this was awesome. Made you think, oh, yep, Cole turned. Here we go. And then afterwards, Roddy tossed him the belt and was like, that's why uh, actually I have an award for Roddy Strong. And the award is the Emperor Palpatine Do It Award. <laughs> and it goes to Roddy Strong for tossing uh, Cole belt and just being like, do it, do it. I'm your friend. Do it. And then eventually MJF was like, nah, don't do it. Eventually, uh, not MJF, Cole. Eventually MJF wins with a roll-up. And they played it up, you know. Cole was upset in the corner. MJF was like, could have went either way, man. You know, could have went either way. I got lucky. Uh, he goes out and grabs her tag belts, gives it to Cole. Cole throws it out of the ring like an upset toddler. Um and then MJF is kind of like, oh, I see. You never were my friend. This was all for the belt. And in like a totally wild MJF moment, when you consider how his character is, just the way he's changed throughout this whole thing, he just like tosses the belt at Cole and was like, you know, just was like, here, you can fucking take it. And then did the same thing where he turned around to let Cole hit him. So they're stretching this thing out because afterwards they hugged it out. Everything was all good. Pyro or not Pyro. Well, Pyro and Confetti go off. That's how we go off the air. Last award I'll give out. It's a very special award. Probably one of the hottest, like most honorable awards you can get in my pay-per-view awards. And this goes to Maxwell Jacob Freeman. He is the winner of the Finn Balor Hottest Ting Into Business Award. Because right now, MJF is the hottest ting into business, okay? Like, he is running at such an elite level. If, if Roman Reigns is God mode, MJF is God mode. Like, all around, you know, when you talk about it, does ever excels at every area and is crushing it right now. He's super over after this whole Cole thing. I feel like the crowd, even if MJF turned, I don't think you would get as many boos as you would get if Cole turned. People love MJF right now. And because they did this angle and 
MJF, let MJF kind of embrace the crowd some, I think you might have crossed past the point of no return to where I think you have to go face with MJF. Sorry about it, but I really think you do. And once again, I wonder if you want to speculate if the plan was Punk versus MJF at All Out, but after the altercation, Perry left the building, and then after Punk's match, they had him leave the building. I wonder, I still wonder if Punk was meant to come out after that match to set up an All Out main event. I don't know. Uh, No one knows. But I'm a little surprised they extended this out. And we don't know what the main event of All Out is, but I'm actually going to get to All Out in a second. So I'm going to take a quick break. Uh, swig a drink of water and I'll be back to talk all out and looking at the time that'll probably be the last thing we talk about tonight sorry WWE Universe you're going to have to wait till next week I'll be right back guys holy crap guys I am back and I apologize I missed a match when I was talking about um, all out so I'm going to rewind just a moment because I did forget to talk about the second match of the night um, which was Golden Elite Omega, Ibushi, Page against Bullet Club Gold. A lot of golden. Um, in the, well, I think I said a stroke. Um, in Bullet Club Gold, which was Jay White and Juice Robinson along with Konosuke Takeshita. Another great match, wild, another wild six-man tag match. They go 20 minutes and 30 seconds. Got a lot of time. And Kinesh, Kineshka, Takeshita picks up the win when he rolls up Kenny Omega. Fun match. Uh, the award on this one. Just one award to give out for this match, and that was the uh, Charlie Kelly Wildcard Award, and it goes to Juice Robinson. That dude's fucking crazy. I don't know. Half the time, I'm like, I don't know what he's doing, but I can't look away from it, and I kind of love it. <laughs> dude's a wild card. He's got mad Charlie Kelly energy for anybody who has watched uh, Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Uh, I imagine this match, this match did set up something for All Out, which we're going to get to in a minute. I did also want to give out one last award. I didn't have it written down. Um, but I do have to give out an award to JR for the, the fuck did you just say? Call of the night award. A little wordy, but the most wild JR call. And they only had him on there for like the first three matches of the show. I, I mean, I like JR. I think he adds a big time feel, but I understand they have JR, Shivani, Taz. They got to, you know, they got to roll through all these guys on a pay-per-view. But during the Bucks entrance, they came out with a, uh, like Freddie Mercury themed, gear um and excalibur points out like oh the bucks with their their ring gear paying tribute to the you know like man he said something like you know british legend rock star or something freddie mercury and jr goes uh and jr goes and is he here tonight and <laughs> but not in like a question way and kind of like uh oh yeah well is he here tonight like well i saw them <laughs> and Excalibur goes, uh, no, you know, unfortunately, uh, Freddie Mercury did pass away some time ago. And then JR just like kind of chuckles and goes, I know. What the fuck? What was that? It had serious, I think you should leave vibe. If anybody saw the skit where the, they're like at dinner with their former professor and he like wants the, you know, Tim Robbins, uh, Tim Robinson's character gets like a, like a burger or something. And the guy really wants it. And then he's like, give me that. And he goes, I'm joking. It had severe I'm joking uh, energy. So we'll go ahead and rename this award to the I'm joking award. And it goes to JR for, I don't know, like making a weird joke, if you can call it that. It was very weird. 
Anyway, those were just a couple of the all-in notes I missed. I, I, I went, there's so much to talk about. It's not my fault, guys. I forgot a couple things, right? Moving on, let's talk a little all-out before we get out of here, eh? So All Out goes down next Sunday, 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 September 3rd. Or I guess it's Monday today. So this Sunday, 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 September 3rd. Live from the United Center. Moving up. No no tiny-ass Well Now Arena, which I actually think the crowd's not going to be much different size-wise, but I think technically United Center can hold more. But anyway, uh, WrestleTix's latest update as of August 21st <clears throat> uh, has them so far 8,991 tickets distributed out of a setup of 10,564. So there's like roughly 1,500 tickets left that are available to be sold. Um, I don't, that doesn't count aftermarket because those tickets are already sold. So that money's already in AEW's pocket. Um, and now last year they did the Now Arena and they drew 9,039. So slightly under last year's, I imagine with a week to go, they can sell the other like 150 tickets to get there. But I'm sure they want to sell out. I don't know. You sell 81,000 tickets. I mean, I, now, to be fa- what worked in AEW's favor for All In is that it was in Wembley in a country in, you know, London where they are starved for the big companies, you know, like a WWE or like international companies, if you want to call AEW, you have to call them an international company now, um, coming over there and putting on big shows. Like most of the time when WWE goes over there, they'll put on like a Monday Night Raw you know, from the UK when they do their tours or, you know, they'll do, and they'll obviously have like a house show circuit going on. It wasn't until this year, um, this past year where they started doing pay-per-views over there again, where they did clash at the castle. And then they did uh, money in the bank most recently at the O2 arena, which is way smaller than Wembley. So yeah, it's gonna be a much smaller crowd, you know, roughly a 10th of the crowd they just had in CM Punk's hometown. Here's what we got on the card so far. We got Luchasaurus and Darby TNT title. All right. Should be good. Should be good. Makes sense. Darby got the win to set up that match. Um, I don't know why it's for the TNT title and Christian Cage is the TNT champion, but whatever. Miro versus Hobbs. That was set up. I think they did a little segment uh, on the... I didn't catch all the pre-show. Um, but I think they did like a little segment where Hobbs and Miro signed a contract. Uh, Statlander versus Soho for the TBS title. And it's kind of telling that this segment happened on Collision. I saw that it happened. Um, I saw the segment online. I didn't get a chance to watch Collision Live. Um, and the 24 hours later, when I was talking to Adam about it, I was like, yeah, Statlander has a TBS title defense coming up uh, at All Out against somebody. <laughs> like, not, not, I mean, also, I can be kind of scatterbrained and forget things. My short-term memory isn't great. I mean, I don't know. Ask me what I had, like, I don't know. Ask me, like, to give you, like, a stat about something from, like, 25 years ago, and I'll, I got you. But ask me, like, a question about something that took place in the last like two hours. I'm like, I can't remember. So not a great, I mean, not a great sign for the women's division. This match was just kind of thrown together. I'm sure there's someone out there that can point out all the segments that happened on, like maybe some other like rampage or something. I don't watch rampage anymore. Um, because they just let that show die to have any feel like it has any reason to watch it. But sometimes there's angles on there that like only probably like a third, if that other audience sees, but whatever. Um, and then there's two that were actually announced at the post-show presser. One was, so they announced when Orange Cassidy, Orange Cassidy was out there and he really like 
kind of had a vibe where he was like over Tony Khan's shit. I think maybe it has to do with like all the titles. I think they were kind of playing off like all his title defenses he ha- he's had to go through and like how banged up he is. So he was kind of cranky about that. But it was announced that Wednesday on Dynamite, it will be Orange Cassidy has to defend his international title against one of Penta's personalities, Obscuro, Cerro Miedo, who knows um, which one's going to show up. But he has to defend his title against them. Or against, <laughs> I guess technically against them since he has multiple gimmicks. Uh and the winner of that goes to All Out to face John Moxley for the title. So it would be weird if Penta won it. I think everybody's kind of penciling in. Orange Cassidy's winning. Mox, this might be, you know, this this could be where Orange Cassidy finally drops the title. I think Mox could really use the win. It might be a boost for the international title. It's one of those things. You look at it either way. It could be a boost for that title. I mean, Cassidy's already done a great job boosting it by like constantly defending it. It feels way, it feels, in my opinion... No, it's kind of close. I'm trying to decide which one feels a little more prestigious between that and the TNT title. But I will say that, I always say this, the international title feels way more important than it did when it, before it got rebranded and it was the like Pan-American continental title, whatever the fuck it was. Um, so you could either look at it two ways. Mox winning that belt could either be a good boost for the belt or it could be, a little bit of, you know, diminished mocks a little bit, having him have a mid-card belt. You know, kind of two sides of the coin. You have to wait to see how it works out, see how it feels. You got to feel it. Um, my only question here is why are we getting Mox Kingston? I feel like that is pretty ready-made, and you could do that at All Out. Uh, maybe they just don't want to go back to some sort of, like, super bloody hardcore match, which is what they would have to do for Mox Kingston. So maybe they're saving it for later. Um, but then again, it's a Mox match. No offense, I love Moxley, but I'm sure he's going to probably – you know, get some color for his match with Orange Cassidy. Uh, and they also announced Kenny Omega versus Takeshita finally one-on-one. So in my predictions, I had taken uh, the Golden Elite and Hangman Page. Um, sorry, he's part of Golden Elite. You know what I mean? I took Golden Elite to win, give them their win, and then I thought they go Omega Takeshita at All Out and Takeshita gets the win. Give him a big boost at the end of the story in this program. I really like that. But they had Takeshita get the roll-up. But I'm not changing my tune. I'm doubling down. It would be a huge boost for Takeshita to pin Omega in that six-man and then a week later beat him one-on-one. And I got to tell you something. Speaking of stock up, stock down, segment we're going to do next week, I'm buying so much stock on Kanosuke. Oh, my God. Kanosuke Takeshita, okay? Love his look. Love the presence. Great in the ring. I think they could run with him as a heel. He's got the mouthpiece, you know. Even though he did speak at that press conference, like I say, his English is pretty solid. But he's got the great heel manager in Don Callis. Don Callis is a treasure, people. He stands next to to Takeshita and just has such a slimy look of like, ah, look at my guy. Look at this one I got here. Yeah, he's mine. I own him. This is my guy here. Like, it's such a slimy look. Like, Takeshita's like this this trophy he shows off. Um, but I think, I think it would be, I mean, call me crazy. You give him the win over Omega, maybe somewhere down the line, Takeshita beating a babyface MJF for the world title. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just throwing the idea out there. I think this guy's a, uh, he's on a rocket head to the moon. If they, if they do it right. So that's everything that is announced so far for all out. And as I mentioned, I don't know if the punk drama threw a wrench in the plans, but either way, it's Monday. All outs in six days. You got two TV shows. You got five matches on the card. I imagine at least 
three more are going to be announced based on how many matches they usually do on the card. I mean, what was what was all in? All in was main card was one, two, three, four. So nine for all in. And nine is usually around what AEW does. Sometimes they crank it up to like 10. I think they've done like an 11 match card before back when Tony Khan was like, no, I think wrestling fans want a six pay- six hour pay-per-view. Um, but yeah, so at five now, I imagine three or at least three or four matches get announced to go to eight, eight or nine. And the big one is like, okay, like of all the matches to announce at the press conference, like I get, you know, those matches have ready-made stories and I can get easily announcing them. But maybe when he had MJF and Adam Cole up there for the presser, say like, what are we doing for the world title? Because it should be your biggest match for a show in six days. And we don't know what you're doing. That's why it makes me think that the punk kerfuffle is causing Khan to be like, okay, what is my main event going to be, depending on how this shakes out? Because it just seems weird if he's dropping news for the world title at the press conference and not talking about what he's doing, A, with the world title, B, with his hottest act in MJF, and C, with his hottest collective act in MJF and Adam Cole. What are we doing? I'm hoping for MJF versus Roddy Strong neck brace on a pole match, um, personally. But, you know, a guy can dream. A guy can fantasy book, but I, I don't know if it's going to happen. Uh, what's Punk doing? Obviously, that wasn't going to be answered. There are people who are like, with the Punk and Perry situation, they're like, it's a work, bro. They're working you, dude. Which, you shouldn't work the boys in the back as the old saying goes. Um, or you should be careful when you do it. Also, it would be interesting if Tony Khan has sources out there. I mean, well, I, I was going to say it might be a dangerous game to play to start working the people who cover the sport. Um, Fightfuls, torches, observers, etc. But if they're working everybody in the back, then that would make sense why the people in the back are not privy to what's actually going on. But it just doesn't make sense to me. Like, unless Punk was like, I really want to work with Perry. We, I want more time to build up a match with MJF, so let's do that. It doesn't make sense. I, just, I, don't, I can't see Punk in his hometown wrestling Jack Perry, who is doing good as a heel, you know, but definitely needs more time working his way up to a bigger spot on the card as a heel. And, I mean, he was just wrestling on the pre-show for that. He just wrestled on the pre-show for the FTW title. And you're telling me in a week... He's going to be wrestling against CM Punk on one of their biggest pay-per-views of the year, one of their big four pay-per-views uh, in his hometown of Chicago. That's kind of a big leap in six days up the card, if you ask me. So I have chances of it being being a work right now. I'm putting on like 3%. 3% chance to work, 96% chance it's a shoot, and 1% chance we're just living in a simulation. But that that's how I break it down. Dynamite, two days. We'll see what they set up there. Hopefully they give more clarification on the world title, you know, because it should be the biggest match selling your pay-per-view. But, I mean, they're almost sold out. So maybe he's like, hey, I almost got the building sold out. What the fuck do I care what I put on? It's terrible Tony Khan impression. But also, you know, there's this thing called like a pay-per-view buy rate. You probably want to get a good one of those. Throwing it out there. Last thing I will say before I sign off and get out of here. Try to get some more WWE talk and other stuff next week. I apologize I didn't get to it here. Um... One thing I wanted to correct from last week before I get out of here 
is that I said Cena was returning just for that uh, superstar spectacle in India where he's teaming with Seth Rollins against Ludwig Kaiser and um, Vinci of Imperium. Um, but he's actually not. He's returning on these. He's doing that, but then he's also going to be on the September 1st SmackDown. He's going to be on SmackDown every week through October 27th. Um, if he's going to be in like kind of like a big program in that time i don't know they did mention that he's doing a thing with the make-a-wish foundation which obviously cena's like set every record for the amount of wishes he's granted um where he's gonna like host some make-a-wish kids at every city bring them out all that good stuff so that's cool but i wanted to correct that he actually is gonna be coming back to wwe television uh and wwe could use him because right now we're kind of in like that weird downtime you know it's like mania ends ramp up to SummerSlam. Then football starts. Everything starts in the fall. People are depressed because they're going back to school. Well, parents are happy because they get rid of their kids for eight hours a day. But kids are depressed. They're going back to school. Um, and some, like this fall part always feels like a down season, a little blip for Survivor Series. And then we're just kind of waiting to get to like December, partway through December, really start ramping up for the Rumble in January. Um so sometimes it feels like a down season. It's also when sometimes WWE does like kind of takes weird swings with their booking. That's why I kind of feel like, I don't know, maybe not can win the title. You know, who knows? Um, but I said I wasn't talking WWE and here I go rambling. But anyway, uh, yeah, it could be a good boost for them to help them out through what is usually uh, a downtime viewership wise, um, et cetera, in the fall. All right, guys, I got to get out of here. Been talking for a long time. And poor Adam has to edit this podcast and listen to my voice for an hour and a half. Real quick before I go, I do want to mention big week. Obviously, like I said, all in on or all out on Sunday, payback on Saturday. That means you're going to have two, two wrestling pay-per-view predictions coming up on the website. Check them out. I did not do great um, with my all in predictions. So Adam has now closed the gap. We are tied. Tied in a dead heat as we make our way to WrestleMania where this uh, competition ends. And with two pay-per-views this week, this is a big week to, for one of us to take the lead. So check that out. Um, obviously, we're always getting articles and other podcasts up relating to uh, sports and whatnot on townalone.com. Check it out. Um, right now, I'm mulling over the idea with Cena coming back. I'm kind of doing a revisionist history article where I look back on the Super Cena run and see if looking back on it and not living it changes my opinion of it. So that could be fun. I'm, I'm uh, starting to work on that. And uh, that's news to senior editor Adam Hess, who uh, I haven't pitched that to him yet, but we'll see what he says. Um, and follow us at Town Alone Mike, at Town Alone Adam, at Town Alone T-A-P-W-P. Email us, Town Alone T-A-P-W-P at gmail.com. One more time, uh, much love and good thoughts out to the Funk and Wyndham families. And I will talk to you guys next week.